Fell Inform, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. Uh, this is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's red heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, a.k.a. the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. You know, if you value what we do, we could sure use your support. Uh, visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website. Or if you run a small business or a nonprofit, um, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. All right, later in the program, we'll be talking with Dr. Maureen McHugh about health concerns related to sequestering carbon dioxide. Uh, Maureen's with uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility. And, and by, by sequestering carbon dioxide, I'm not talking about the kind of sequestration that happens with uh, trees. You know, trees are, you know, trees are pretty harmless, okay? Unless one falls on your head. Almost had that happen once. Yeah, I'm talking about the mechanical CO2 sequestration. For example, of most notable interest here in the upper Midwest, pipelines. Uh, 2,000 miles worth of pipeline transporting CO2 planned just for Iowa. Uh, speaking of health, um, we'll also talk about planetary health, which is the subject of a film by Sam Myers, reminding us that humans are not separate from the Earth. Uh, yeah, who knew, really? Uh, the film is called The Promise of Planetary Health, and the bottom line is uh, so-called human exceptionalism continues to you know, guide economic and public policy in the U.S., and you know, the film takes a shot at this sense of human exceptionalism, uh, which is really destroying nature um, and, and threatening to destroy all of us. I mean, I think we are starting to catch on to that reality. Anyway, Sam Myers, the producer and narrator of the film, will join us for that conversation. And finally, during our farm and food segment, Kathy Burns and I will, uh, we will answer as many garden questions as we can muster in our short little segment. But first, of course, the uh, biggest news this week is the uh, midterm elections. And uh, this program, by the way, is pre-recorded. We are pre-recording this segment on Wednesday morning, November 9th at uh, 8 a.m. Central Time. So... Stuff may happen later today that will change what I say now. <laughs> so I'm, I'm throwing that caveat in there. But I think a lot of what we will come to accept as the outcome of the midterm elections this year is already known. Uh, first of all, I assume, I assume that nearly all of America is united at this point in, in, in great relief that the insulting barrage of negative attack ads is a, finally over. Uh, you know, I don't. Even, we don't even have a TV, but you know, you, you go on YouTube or Facebook, and it's just everywhere. Uh, I mean, and it's so hideous. I mean, Democrats do it too. Republicans do it worse. Uh, and it's it's just it's so it's such an assault. It is such a relief not to have to look at that stuff anymore. And I think that's something that that Republicans and Democrats, rural and urban Americans, can unite behind. You know, and how bad is it? Okay, so. Uh, Kathy, my wife Kathy has a, has a what eight-year-old uh, granddaughter who um, is exposed to these ads as well, 
And one of them is uh, particularly horrible. It was painting uh, Congresswoman Cindy Axney as, as basically saying she was responsible for the uptick in crime, the increase in, in car theft this year. Uh, it, 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 even, it, it wasn't even implying. It's like Cindy is to blame for these things. And so, you know, nine-year-old Rosie says to Kathy, uh, why is Cindy Axney bad? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wasn't there to witness the exchange, but I think the way Kathy described it, she said, she described why, you know, someone might think that after what you see on TV. And then, of course, Rosie responds, so is Zach Nunn good? <laughs> well, not necessarily either, just because Zach Nunn says he's good and he puts out ads about Cindy Axney being bad. But uh, on that note, before we talk about the big picture, the U.S. as a whole, I, let, let's, I mean, Iowa's a good bellwether, folks. Um, we are as red now as any state in the nation. Um, and, and if you look at all, if you look at the states that have four or more congressional districts, and that's most of them, we are redder than Alabama. We're redder than Mississippi. Then redder than Kentucky, redder than Tennessee. All of those states have at least one congressional district or more in some case, I think at least one, that are, are Democrat. We are solid. Our, all four of our congressional districts are now Republican. Uh, Cindy Axney lost, the only Democrat remaining in the, in the state. And again, at one time, uh, Iowa had, what, three out of four Democratic congressional districts and uh, a Democratic, uh, Senator Harkin, a Democrat in the U.S. Senate. Uh, not only that, but the statewide offices, uh, Tom Miller, who'd been the attorney general, a Democratic attorney general since, um, since Hector was a pup, uh, got beat and beat pretty handily. Uh, 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 Mike Fitzgerald, the uh, state treasurer, also a Democrat, got beat quite handily. The only statewide race that is reasonably close uh, that might go the way of the Democrats is Rob Sand. Uh, he's the, of the uh, three I mentioned, Fitzgerald, Miller, and Sand. He, Sand is the only one who's been who's new to this. He's a young guy, um, just got elected his first term four years ago, and he's doing the best. <laughs> uh, he might not lose. I'm not sure. It's very, very close. It's too close to tell. But, um, you know, the, the, the governor's race, I mean, solid. I mean, the victory, Kim Reynolds won by an absolute landslide. Uh, the Iowa House, um, even though Democrats picked up some seats in the uh, suburbs, uh, it is now, what, 64, by my count, 64 Republicans in the Iowa House and 36 Democrats. When I got elected in uh, 1990, my first term in 1993, it was 51 Republicans, 49 Democrats. And then later in, in uh, between 20, uh, 2007 and 2010, Democrats controlled the Iowa House and Senate and governor's office. That's just a little over a decade ago when Iowa was purple and in some, for some years predominantly Democratic. And now it is as solid Republican as Utah, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. We are tied with those four states as the most red state in the country. That's incredible, folks. That's incredible. And uh, the Iowa Senate, it's still too early to count that out, too. But I think Democrats, um, again, picking up a seat here and there in the suburbs, but uh, losing other seats. Now, here, here's an interesting fact, too. The, um, the river towns in Iowa, Dubuque, 
Clinton, Burlington, uh, Keokuk, those cities along the Mississippi River uh, were always historically pretty democratic. Well, um, one of the longest serving members of the Iowa House, uh, Denny Cahoon, who I served with, who I, I mean, I got along with him fine, he, even though he was a Yankees fan, um, he represented uh, Burlington in southeast Iowa for like maybe 35 years. I'm not sure, but it's somewhere between 30 and 40 years he's been there. Well, he got beat. Uh, Chuck Eisenhart, um, a very progressive Democrat in Dubuque, who, um, who uh, is a champion when it comes to campaign finance reform, barely won. Dubuque. Dubuque is a, is a, is a Catholic town. And German, Irish, Catholic, somehow they all get along. But it's, it's been a solid democratic town forever. And here's a guy who's been there for a while and is a, you know, is, is a decent lawmaker by any standard, barely winning. So, you know, Democrats may be seeing an edge in the suburbs. I mean, this may be, again, Iowa may be, a, may be an indicator of the rest of the country. I can't tell you for sure at the state level. But uh, here... Democrats are making some inroads in the suburbs, but losing working-class voters. Here's an example, too. I mean, Des Moines is a solid Democratic town. Solid. And, uh, in fact, I think all seven or eight, maybe it's eight now, uh, um, state legislative seats, House seats, are, are solid Democrat. But here's, a, here's an interesting development from last night. Um, Rick Olson, who has served for a while, and, and again, I served with him as well. He's been there for at least 20 years now, I think. Uh, East Side District. I used to have part of that district. Uh, one of the strongest union voting districts in the state. He wins about 53% to 47%. You never see that. In Des Moines, it's always, I mean, I would win by, I think my lowest ever was 67. And that was in a primary. Usually I won between 75 and 90, you know. Um, and that wasn't uncommon for not, not just for me, but for other Democrats in Des Moines. It is so such a Democratic stronghold and such a strong uh, union presence. But the strongest union district in Des Moines is the northeast side, and that's the one that was pretty close. You know, and so, and then again, again looking at, at, uh, at Burlington, Iowa, the, the river towns, Dubuque, these are all strong uh, union towns. And union votes are going away from Democrats. Working class votes are going away from Democrats. And that's not just a, just a problem here in Iowa. And you know, in, in Iowa, so the, for those of you not overly familiar with fly, flyover country, uh, Iowa has um, a really interesting history as a very progressive place. So I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm, going, to, I'm going to boast for a minute here. Um, in 1857, uh, Iowa was the first, we had one of the first state universities to open our programs to women in 1857. In 1869, a few years later, uh, Julia Addington became the first woman in the U.S. to be elected to a public office. This was before you could even vote, uh, women. <laughs> women couldn't even vote, and she was elected to be a Mitchell County superintendent. Uh, you know, also way back when, 1871, a gal named Ada North was the first woman in the whole country, in the U.S., to be appointed to a statewide office. She was appointed to the Iowa State Library position. So, you know, in, in 1869, uh, Iowa was the first state to allow women to join the bar. 
1875, Emma Haddock of Iowa City, the first female in the U.S. to practice law before a federal court. Um, 1934, the first mosque in the country built in Iowa, all right, in uh, Cedar Rapids. Uh, uh, back to 1851, uh, in, interracial marriage. You think of interracial marriage as being, you know, a, a hot button back in, what, the 50s, 60s even? In 1851, 1851, Iowa became the second state to legalize interracial marriage, all right? You know, in 1846, uh, Iowa became the second state to allow married women to own property. I know, that gets dangerous, right? But um, <laughs> that was way back then, 1846. Uh, you know, in 1868, we segregated our, uh, we, we outlawed segregated schools. Uh, and in 2007, the one I remember, the only one I remember, Smarty, uh, was in 2007, Iowa became the second state to allow marriage equality for gays and lesbians. So look at our history. I mean, it is remarkably progressive. So suddenly we are as red, as Redder than Alabama, redder than Mississippi. We are as red as Utah, Oklahoma, and Arkansas, among states that have at least four congressional districts. And again, uh, two and maybe three of the statewide elected Democrats uh, have lost. Two have lost pretty handily. Two that have probably held office, what, 50 years between the two of them, Fitzgerald and Miller. So, um, yeah. I don't think the people of Iowa are changing as much as we need to have a longer conversation about this, and I want to I want to do that at a, at a different day when I have more time to to plan how to how to lay this out. But basically, I'll just say this much: the Democratic Party needs to go away. It's done. It's finished. And I love the I love the headlines. Look into the big picture. The headlines in the in the in the um, the, uh, the paper of the status quo. That would be the New York Times. Um, Big winners tonight. Biden, who lost far fewer congressional seats than historical averages. That's a that's a victory. <laughs> okay, whatever. Uh, if you want to you want to pat yourself on the back and call that a win, go for it. Here's another one from the New York Times. There wasn't a red wave. That is a searing indictment of the Republican Party. That is a searing indictment of the message that we have been sending to the voters. Really, no wave, no red wave. Uh, it looks like the U.S. House is going to go Republican. Well, that's a, maybe maybe not a tidal wave, but enough wave to change the uh, change the makeup of the beach. Uh, the Senate is too early to tell, and we won't know until December, folks. So uh, with the uh, with the um, Georgia contest likely to go to a runoff, um, you know it looks like Arizona is probably going the Democrats' way, Wisconsin probably the Republicans' way, Nevada too early to call. So you know some of this stuff is still up in the air, but. To try to, to try to put a spin on this, this was somehow not a bad night for Democrats? Give me a break. I mean, in Iowa, a horrible night for Democrats. Nationally, not that good either. <laughs> you know what? But look at the trends. More suburbs are going with Democrats. Meanwhile, rural areas and working classes, you know, Americans, are going with Republicans. We Democrats say, you have a problem. It's time to, it's time to admit that basically... Uh, the organization is defunct. At some point, this happens. You know, human organizations, just like human beings, uh, they, 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 they run their course. Uh, and at some point, you just have to say, okay, um, we need a new structure. And that's where we're at with the Democratic Party. 
The Democratic Party needs a new structure. And we'll be talking about that a bunch more on this program because it's an important conversation. It's, um, it, it, it ties in with the life-threatening issues of climate change and the threat of nuclear war. Because when your structure isn't sound, then failure, uh, failure on either of those fronts becomes more probable. Anyway, folks, um, we have uh, more conversation on this program. Uh, I'm Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be discussing planetary health and the problem of human exceptionalism. We'll talk about that with Sam Myers back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, folks. Uh, you know, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, owner Mark Clipsham says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, please use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, the greenest longest-lasting materials available. That's Architecture by Synthesis. Again, later in the program, we'll talk about the uh, negative impacts on human health posed by carbon dioxide pipelines. But what about the uh, bigger health concern, the, the health of the planet? Uh, uh, Sam Myers has a short film called The Promise of Planetary Health. It digs deep into that question. It's an excellent film. Uh, and Sam joins us on the phone today from Harvard University. He's the uh, director of the Planetary Health Alliance and the principal research scientist at the Department of Environmental Health. Uh, Sam, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Glad to be with you. Yeah. Hey, first... Um, Tell us about your work. Uh, what 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 do you do that led you to produce this very, I think very 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 professional and very promising film? Yeah, well, thanks. So I'm a physician uh, trained in internal medicine, but I've strayed pretty far from those roots. And <laughs> I do two things. I do research on how. Uh, human uh, transformation of our planet's natural systems, the climate system, biodiversity, changes in land use, pollution, all the ways that our activities change um, our planet's natural systems, and how that affects uh, human health in different populations all around the world. So I have several different kinds of research projects that look at different aspects of environmental change and how it affects human health. And then I direct, as you said, the Planetary Health Alliance, which is a big global 
consortium of over 300 organizations in over 65 countries that come together really to try to grow this field of understanding, but also to, to mainstream the new insights that we're getting and this new mm. framework of planetary health into the world of action and decision-making. And so uh, the film, again, The Promise of Planetary Health, uh, calls out a problem, and that is uh, what you, you, you describe as human exceptionalism. And to me, um, that sounds an awful lot like uh, the if you, philosophy, if you can call it a philosophy, of manifest destiny, which was, of course, used by Europeans to subdue the indigenous inhabitants of North America. Um, you know, but in that paradigm, of course, humans... Some humans are more exceptional than others. Do you see any, any connection between the general concept of human exceptionalism and manifest destiny? Well, it's interesting. No one's ever asked me that before, but I see what you mean. And I, I, I think where I would make the ties is that the story of human exceptionalism is really to say that we can think of ourselves as different and set apart from the rest of the natural world. And in that story is sort of a of a myth that we can live apart from nature. And it's a myth that I think has gotten us into a lot of trouble and allowed us to think we can exploit our planet's natural systems as far as we want without any consequences. And now we're actually seeing those consequences and it's interesting to think about manifest destiny because of course as you said we're subduing indigenous populations and many of those indigenous peoples all around the world not only in north america have their own stories that right. involve a much sort of more interdependent set of connections between people and their natural systems and so within the planetary health community we're all often are raising up those stories from indigenous peoples mm -hmm. just as part of the dialogue on on how we heal a sort of ruptured relationship between people and planet sure because every everywhere in the world has its, its religion its spiritual beliefs its practices and um you know i mean some would argue that religion has been a big part of the problem in terms of creating this sense of human exceptionalism and maybe that's more true specifically of the the judeo-christian tradition than it would be for example of some of the the native traditions that we have suppressed through through manifest destiny through this sense of of one particular people being exceptional uh and unique and and thus you know, thus justified in dominating another culture. So maybe it's just some religions that have been part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think religion is an institution like so many other human institutions, and our institutions reveal both the very best and the very worst of, of human beings. So I think you can find a lot um, of examples either way. But I, I think part of what we're talking about in that video is that um, we can also disconnect the conversation about religious institutions from a conversation about spirituality. And Good one point. of the points that we're making in that video is that um, there's sort of a spiritual crisis that we're in where somehow the reverence and the awe that so many of us feel toward the natural world has lost its authority to really guide our um, decisions in how we live. And it's it's we may need to find a new relationship to nature and also mm -hmm. to each other as part of the need for this great transition, the shift in how we live in order to protect nature and in so doing protect ourselves. Yeah. And I, I know the film, uh, I, I, by the way, I've watched your film uh, three times now. <laughs> I like it a lot. I'm recommending it to everybody I know. And 
and, and I, I know that toward the end you kind of wrap into the wrap into the conversation the spiritual dimension. Earlier on in the film, you I, I want to quote something uh, that you said. Uh, quote the same extraordinary technical and scientific developments that fueled these unimaginable improvements in human development over the course of a single lifetime also accelerated the erosion of our planet's natural systems. So, yeah, I mean. It, do we do you see a technical and scientific fix to the problem we've gotten into, or is it just innately, no matter what we try to do through technology and science, is going to make the problem worse? No, I don't believe that at all. I think that there is a very very rich landscape of solutions out there, some of which are technological solutions, and there's an enormous uh, room for a need for innovation in technology, really across every dimension of human activity from, you know, renewable energy and our energy systems and the need to decarbonize our energy economy to address climate change. And those, you know, innovations around solar and wind and other types of renewable energy have been extraordinarily important. Same mm. same with our global food system, with our built environment. You started out with a plug for an architecture firm that's pushing, you know, green solutions. Those kinds of innovations and technologies are really important part of the overall solution. It's just not the only part. And, and there's probably an underlying um, dimension of culture change and you know this sort of spiritual question that I that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Now, I, I know you, you mentioned in the film the importance of stabilizing human population. That's a fairly controversial conversation. I mean, you still have the uh, the, the, those, the, the, those in the higher echelons of ec economic and political uh, discussion, you know, don't blink an eye at saying, you know, the population of the world is going to be 10 billion before long. And yet I'm, I'm going to assume from just your, your angle on this that that's not where we should be heading. That's not where the planet will allow us to head if we hope to reach any kind of a sustainable level of population. True? Well, I mean, I think that you know the, the the size of our ecological footprint as a as a species is dependent on several different factors one of which is uh, how many people there are another is the consumption practices of those people sure. and a third yep. is the technologies that they use for that consumption and so all three factors are important um there's not a whole lot of debate that we're probably going to end up with nine or ten billion people by the end of this century and then chances are population is going to stabilize and start to fall. But I think what isn't controversial in most circles is that there are certain things that we can do that are really, really good things to do independent of the population question, but that will also help us achieve a demographic transition more quickly and reduce our ecological footprint. And those are things like educating girls around the world and providing economic opportunities for women and providing access to contraception for couples who want it. And, and those kinds of interventions also improve, you know, gender equality, they improve maternal and child mortality, they improve outcomes for children and families. And so they're, they're good things to be doing anyway, but pushing that um, set of interventions forward and making sure that we're thinking about those things is also a way to speed the demographic transition and help reduce the total ecological footprint of humanity. I mean, one point you make in the film is that, uh, you know, we have pushed most uh, life forms into, some have already gone extinct, some are in, in danger, 
uh, and many have just been reduced to very small populations compared to what the Earth used to sustain. Uh, and you know, it seems like at some point there's got to be that that balance. Try if, if it's a desirable good to see an increase in global populations of the diversity of creatures that inhabit this planet. That also means not just that we educate, you know, women and children, that we um, that we eat differently, that we have a lower, you know, consumptive footprint, but also there's, there's probably going to have to be less of us at some point. At some point. Well, I think that's actually the natural trajectory. Um, and in fact, what we're seeing is that in most parts of the world, population is actually starting to fall. By many estimates, the population of China is likely to be down well below a billion people, closer to 700 million people by the end of this century. And mm. so we're already seeing it in Europe. We're seeing it in North America. Um, and so I don't think the question is, you know, how do we deal with um, exponentially growing human population into sort of far future. I think we, it's much more a question of um, how do we manage the next 50 years when we're going to have a growing human population and get through this bottleneck. And then on the other side of that, there's a whole lot of sort of hope for creating a, a much brighter future in which human population has stabilized and actually started to come down on its own. Mm, right. And there's more and more opportunity for the rest of the biosphere to begin to regenerate around us. Yeah. Now, uh, this week and next, of course, we have the, the big climate event of the, uh, of the year, of the, well, even, even bigger than just one year, the uh, COP27 Climate Summit in Egypt. Uh, do you have any hope that that might accomplish things that will help move us in the right direction? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that these meetings are important. I think it's, um, you know, multilateralism is extremely important. I also think this is sort of a fraught, you know, moment for multilateralism with everything else that's going on in the mm, world right. and the war in Ukraine and um you know, we've been coming out of this COVID pandemic. And so I'm not enormously hopeful that we're going to see huge um, uh, new commitments coming out of this meeting. Um, I, I, in fact, think if you want to find sort of hopeful news, you, you need to look not so much at the national and international uh, landscape, but to start seeing what people are doing in cities and states all over the world mm -hmm. and what movements are doing. And I think we're seeing extraordinary action on those scales. So um, I think it's important. This COP process is an important process. It's also, as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, a very cumbersome process. And, yeah. you know, because these are consensus meetings and consensus documents, it takes absolutely everybody right. to agree from all over the world. And as a result, they tend to be slightly watered down. Um, but I think what's really important is to have, um, you know, young people, faith leaders, uh, clinicians, you know, groups all over the world coming together to build movements to demand action and to hold our governments accountable so that when mm. they go to meetings like the COP27 meetings in Sharm el-Sheikh, they know that their constituencies are really hungry to see meaningful action. And I think that's a place where right. regardless of this particular meeting, we could all be working more effectively, just coming together and trying to build those kinds of movements. So, uh, Sam, next week on this program, uh, the I think probably the most prominent spokesperson for climate, let me call it climate doomism, 
Uh, Guy McPherson, he's going to join us for a conversation about his perspective. And again, he contends it's already too late. Uh, humans will be extinct in, the, in a short order. Uh, I presume you would think he's wrong? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know Guy McPherson. Um, I think that um, perspective, that sort of the, the apocalyptic sort of catastrophic perspective is really, really unhelpful and also um, has no real basis in fact. I think the fact is we don't know what's going to happen in the future and we don't know because it all depends on what we decide to do over the next you know, right. 10 to 20 years. And mm -hmm. so if we develop the political will as a global society to um, take not only the climate problem, but the broader set of planetary health challenges seriously, there's enormous potential to turn things around. And if we don't, then the catastrophe, you know, will unfold. I, I doubt that we'll be extinct, but I think in some ways what's even more unfair is that the poorest people in the right. world and future generations will suffer, you know, really significantly as a result of our failure to act. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think to say it's too late, you know, the sort of Jim Hansen game over for the planet message um, is simply unhelpful and isn't based on any kind of real analysis of anything. It's based on a guess about what we're going to decide to do over the next 10 years. Yeah. One, one more question for you, Sam. The, um, again, part of, a, part of my critique of what's blocking us from going forward is this, uh, this, this, we're married to this, uh, this economic model that I sometimes call the endless growth paradigm. We're always getting bigger, always consuming more. Every, every month, every quarter, everything, everything has to be more than it was previously or something's wrong. And I think at some point that has to be challenged. And we have to say uh, we need a different kind of model. Uh, and you mentioned circular economy in the film. Uh, and it seems to me like we might be on the same page when it comes to saying the current method of measuring uh, human, uh, the, 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 the health and well-being of human society based on this, this sense of economic growth has to change. Well, I think that the problem is precisely that we don't measure the well-being of society. We measure growth in capital. So the problem is that GDP as a measurement, which is what most of our you know, economies are based on, um, doesn't have anything to do with well-being. You know, right. It has to do right. with capital flows. Sure. And so um, there's actually a whole movement that we've been aligning ourselves with at the Planetary Health Alliance called the Well-Being Economies Alliance. Yeah. And, that whole community of well-being economics is about doing exactly that, is trying to change those metrics and sure. change the, the way we steer our economies in order to optimize the things that we actually value, our yeah. well-being, our health, the state of our natural systems, elder care, child care, you know, the things that we care mm. about as a society, sure, and um, which the, isn't what, what GDP is doing. Sure, and the current model, of course, uh, uh, people can be really, really sick and spend lots of money on physical or mental health care, and that counts as a positive toward uh, toward measuring economic vitality, <laughs> which is uh, yeah, insane when you think about it. Yeah, we cigarettes and we get lung cancer. Right, exactly. Both of those things are very positive yeah. from the standpoint of GDP. Well, Sam, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, thank you so much, and good luck with your work. Well, thanks so much for having me, and, and uh, nice to be with you and your audience. Yeah, folks, I will be uh, putting out a note about uh, how to watch the uh, film, The Promise of Planetary Health. Uh, that was Sam Myers. He's, uh, he's uh, taking the time to join us, and we really appreciate that. Again, this is Ed Fallon. 
We have to take a short break here. When we come back, uh, we'll be talking with Dr. Maureen McHugh of Physicians for Social Responsibility about the impacts of carbon dioxide pipelines on human health. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, the niche we provide here is more important than ever. So please support what we do. You can go to the Fallon Forum website, check it out. Uh, you can donate. You can become a sponsor if you are a nonprofit or a business. Uh, we'd love to have you join us as a monthly sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. I would now like to welcome to the program Dr. Maureen McHugh. She's with Physicians for Social Responsibility, also with the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights. Maureen, welcome to the program. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me. So I know that uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility is concerned about the impact on human health from uh, sequestering carbon dioxide. And you know, as you know, I'm not talking about Trees. Trees are my favorite form of carbon sequestration. They're pretty harmless unless one falls on you. I'm talking about the mechanical CO2 sequestration that um, we're seeing a lot of right here in Iowa, and certainly in all of the upper Midwest, uh, carbon dioxide pipelines. And you, um, your organization recently released some information that I thought was pretty provocative and warranted a conversation. Maureen, uh, tell us about that, uh, that research, and thank you for joining us. Um. Well, thank you for asking, and I'm going to just back up a little bit. I, I suppose you said um, people are aware that this is the time when, again, the world is looking at and trying to come up with solutions for the looming uh, disasters called climate change. Uh, and so uh, anything we talk about in terms of solutions, I really do think needs to be couched in the sense of urgency that we're facing, the country, the globe is really facing a rapidly closing window to drastically reduce greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm, yeah. And 
that is why uh, we are concerned about CCS. It's not entirely a new um, kind of uh, process, but it is a kind of uh, process being promoted by the very companies that have brought us to this edge of doom. And again, I, the fossil fuel companies and again, being promoted by them. Again, CCS, for people who might not know, is carbon capture and sequestration. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Um, and just, you know, for a wee bit of background, the United States in 2019 already emitted 5,130 million metric tons of energy-related carbon dioxide. We are a huge source of carbon dioxide. Yet, essentially, during that same time, only 39 metric tons are captured, were captured, have been captured, I'm sorry, annually by CCS, even though government and big businesses are really promoting it and the big businesses being the fossil fuel industry so they have um, put out a process that is very costly takes a lot of time is being pushed by people misleading the safety the economics the impact on climate really creating an entire industry around a false claim and it's not only a false claim it's a really unhealthy dangerous claim because while we're putting all kinds of eggs in this basket in this country and around the world um, we're ignoring the things that need to be done and that need to be done urgently so now, so we have been working on this to try and get the word out so thank right. you for asking it is not just big business that is promoting carbon capture it's also right. government. I mean, look at the, the Build Back Better bill had, I can't right, remember how right. much and money who, in it. Who has the ear? Who has right. the microphone? Well, yeah. And, and who gets but, but it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all being couched in language of this is what we need to do to fight climate change. This is going to help us protect humanity by capturing these carbon emissions before they do damage in the atmosphere. But you're, um, again, physicians, you know, a, a profession concerned primarily with human health. Uh, right. Your organization uh, that has has come out and said, okay, so these are this is not the case. Uh, the um, the government, the, the federal government, is wrong when they're saying this is a solution to climate change. The businesses that want to build these pipelines are wrong, and what they're ignoring one one thing they're ignoring is the impact that these pipelines potentially have on human health. So tell yes, us tell us a little I, about absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, we cannot for a second forget how really dangerous to health and survival is climate change itself. I mean, the whole list of health implications due to a changing climate uh, require, you know, several hours to elucidate from the impacts of heat itself on, on people's bodies to allergies, respiratory problems. Pandemics, in fact, are um, a part of the changing climate. And, and, as, and so as, as are nastier ticks and mosquitoes. Yeah, there you go. Um, you know, not to mention injuries, drownings, poor mental health. We're, we're also talking about unpredictable weather, heat, water scarcity, contributing to that poor health picture by reducing crop yields. And we're going to have facing major food emergencies in many parts of the world now exacerbated by a war. 
We're facing water wars potentially. And so these are this is the background health picture and then add to it what's going on with the CCS, mm-hmm. which brings its own health risks. So capturing CO2 from oil extraction industries, i.e. the fossil fuels, coal, uh, natural gas, so-called, and oil, all themselves release a long list of health in, uh, challenging uh, releases, but then you add capture carbon capture technology, which itself is energy, highly energy dependent, adds to the CO2 being released. So while it pulls in some, it produces more so that you don't get a huge improvement. As I mentioned, there's just a tiny amount of CO2 that's actually being captured. And in the meanwhile, it's, you know, requiring its energy. It's releasing all the same toxins that um, the fossil fuels put out that affect people's uh, cardiovascular function, that Mm -hmm. um, increase uh, cancers, that, that shorten people's life expectancy, that affect adversely uh, childbirth and pregnancy, particularly for the frontline communities. And then you add on to it that it requires water at all levels. And I just mentioned that climate change itself is contributing to water scarcity. And so then you, you take an industry that is highly water dependent. All the fossil fuels are highly, highly water dependent across their entire life. Uh, span, and then you add to it in yet another technology, and then you know you're trying to capture it, and you can't just capture it and hold it where you capture it. It's got to get sequestered, as you say. Right. So you have to find a place to sequester it. So then you have to concentrate it somehow, which takes a whole lot of energy, and put it into pipelines and push it somewhere. Well, the pipelines, of course, are interrupting our soil and uh, further contributing to the disruption in our environment. And the list just goes on of these problems. Yeah. And well, and just, just, I, the, I, just the sheer wrongness of taking someone's private land in order to, right. you know, in order to put in a, essentially a private pipeline. But, but one of the arguments in favor of the uh, pipelines here in Iowa that the proponents make is that it's going to help the ethanol industry because this and ethanol is this is good for two reasons they say one is ethanol is a clean fuel and two iowa farmers and other farmers in the upper midwest grow a lot of corn and this will assure that they're going to be able to grow corn going into the future so well, how do you how do you respond to that argument those two arguments I, it's so specious one hardly knows where to begin you know as somebody said is ethanol the triumph of hope over experience it creates competition for other resources like water and food. It speeds up deforestation and soil and nutrient loss. It causes disputes over land rights. It contributes to pollinator extinction, rising food costs, and it maintains our reliance on dirty liquid fuels all along its life cycle. It requires energy for growing, harvesting, transporting, fermenting, fuel production and distribution. I mean, it's heavily dependent on fertilizers, which uh, we have been hearing more and more of how difficult it is, how much energy is required to create the fertilizers to create the ammonia. 
and using CCS to capture the emissions at the plants, at the ethanol plants, can only capture, like at any of the plants, a small portion of these emissions, and it doesn't address any of their other environmental or health harms. Ethanol is like a word you almost can't, you know, say out loud in a, in a disparaging voice in this state. I realize that. <laughs> But with I found that out changing, too. What's going to happen yeah. to corn anyway? Yeah. Well, and again, the argument there is: well, we're going to continue to develop uh, new genetic, genetically modified versions of corn that are going to withstand heat and drought better. That's the argument. Right, but we all know that industrial ag is destroying rural Iowa. Agriculture in Iowa is absolutely dominated by corn and soybeans and hogs. And and hogs, and, yeah. And, and chickens. I mean, this is not feeding the world. Well, yeah. the chickens keep getting killed by the pandemic that are affecting <laughs> right, right. birds. And the hogs um, keep going to China. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. a big, and, big and chunk of them. And meanwhile, we're doing all of this. We can't drink our water. We have some of the worst, most imperiled waters in the country. We can't breathe the air. The soil is dying or disappearing. Um, you know, all of this related to the way we're doing industrial agriculture. This is not um, sustainable. Mm. We need uh, other approaches, both for our economic well-being, for our future, all the way around. And, you know, capturing the CO2 that gets produced at the ethanol factories or uh, distilleries is, is really not the solution. So uh, in terms of other impacts on human health from these carbon dioxide pipelines, what about the, um, what about the, the landowner who's on the, on the pipeline route? You know, they're really not that worried about climate change or about some of these bigger environmental concerns. They just want to be able to farm, make a living. Right. Um, how, how, how are these uh, pipelines potentially, other than, other than the fact that they're going to probably damage the soil, uh, and, and maybe well, they are going to damage their soil. There's they're, not a problem. And their and their I mean, and their tiling system. And, yeah. Yeah. Are there are there, uh, are there are there other human health impacts that they should be concerned about? Indeed, indeed. Um, they don't live real close to hospitals most of the time. They don't have emergency response networks that are going to show up at a moment's notice. Um, pipelines um, are dangerous wherever they are. Uh, but pipelines for concentrated um, CO2 in its liquid state are particularly dangerous. CO2 is a, um, you, you can't smell it. It's a gas that is odorless. It is a gas that in any concentration is dangerous to life. Our entire lives from the moment we're um, embryos until the day we die is, is um, dependent on a balance between the oxygen we take in and the CO2, the waste product that we breathe out. We cannot breathe and live in CO2. So if one of those pipelines right. ruptures yeah. for whatever reason, as has it's happened. pretty, as has pretty happened. damn dangerous. Yeah. yeah, as has happened. So, Hey, um, as, one, as one, happened. one more yeah. question. Big picture. Uh, COP27 happening in Egypt this week and next week as well. Uh, do we have any hope that uh, something major will come out of that, generally speaking? And do you think there's any possibility of the carbon capture and sequestration issue being addressed? Well, that's for, for people who, whose uh, uh, 
you know, uh, a lot closer to what's happening there in, in terms of the politics. What we do know is that, unfortunately, a lot of lobbyists for these sorts of non-solutions really uh, get a lot of uh, megaphone. Uh, and, but we do also know that there are a lot of uh, people who are working at the grassroots levels with indigenous peoples, with uh, island dwellers, etc., are showing up and making more noise all the time. And um, the hope is with the people that are boosting sustainable job-creating solutions um, and, and at the same time saying we really need to ditch uh, the fossil fuels. And I just keep hoping um, and helping to promote the ideas of sustainable agriculture or regenerative agriculture and um, looking at non-industrial solutions, but rather mm. grassroots solutions. Well, and, we're, keep, um, we're keeping an eye on Egypt these, these couple weeks for sure. Uh, Maureen, yeah, thank, you, uh, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, and it's time that we have some kind of a treaty to get rid of abolish fossil fuels. I know that's <laughs> one of the things that some of the groups yeah. will be talking about, and well, so let's all talk about it. It's time. Okay. Again, thanks for joining us, uh, folks. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Maureen McHugh <laughs> with you. Physicians for Social Responsibility. We've got to take a short break, and when we come back, Kathy Burns and I will answer some of the November garden questions that have been coming our way uh, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued, and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Forum for our farm and food conversation. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor of the program. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has an excellent catering and floral service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, welcome to the program, uh, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. As we do every month, we answer people's questions about gardening. And even in November, even in December, even in January. But here we are, November, starting to get cold in lots of parts of the country, including here in central Iowa. Uh, what kind of stuff are you hearing about, Kathy? What questions are on people's mind? I know garlic is certainly one of them. It is, and, and first of all, 
I've written the date several times lately, writing checks and notes and things, and I've accidentally written October so many <laughs> times because even though the season is finally starting to change, it still feels like it's probably the beginning of October more than the beginning of November. So that's what a lot of our questions have to do with is the changing seasons and garlic, garlic, garlic. People love their garlic. Yeah, and I think people sometimes realize, they think you can still plant it in the spring, but I've never known a spring garlic planting to do anywhere near as well as a fall garlic planting. I think for people who want to use the the garlic just fresh, just as they pull it and use it right away, but not for storage. So one person is writing in a social media forum, super late to the game, but looking for a line on some garlic to plant. I'd like to plant something local so we can take advantage of the nice weather this, it was says this weekend uh, that... uh, that no longer is so, but um, <laughs> the answer is yes. You are late to the game. It's almost <laughs> it's almost the end of yeah. game. For and that you. may not be the case in some places, but in Central Iowa, you want to get your garlic in early November. And I, my my experience is the problem this year is a lot of people are having a hard time finding garlic Correct. heads they can buy to plant. That's right. So there's no time to order garlic from any online source right now. If you can find somebody selling it local. Uh, good for you and good luck. We, When we are seeing them, uh, we're seeing a lot of people say they're sold out, but when we're seeing garlic for sale, they are ranging from $15 per pound, so maybe 40 cloves for that $15, to $15 per bulb. Per bulb. And uh, that and might have 10 Well, no, usually 4 cloves. to 7. Depends if it's nice, lot. big yeah. cloves. Yeah, but, four to seven or eight at the most, I think, in my experience. But, uh, you know. So um, everybody think about garlic early this <laughs> yeah. coming year and secure your <laughs> if garlic. If you're listening to this program, you're probably too late. Um, uh, what else? Somebody else uh, just planted garlic this uh, on November 6th and said they didn't have any measurable rain in the forecast. Do they need to water it? First, yes, oh, yeah, after you sure. put the straw on top. Or maybe before and after even. Huh? Oh, true. Yeah, you could do that. Sure. Sometimes the straw on top helps you not disrupt the soil and kind of accidentally oh, dig true. in where, you know, create little divots where you sure. planted your garlic. Yeah. But um, chicken wire over the straw then? Well, we, like, do. we do because we have a squirrel problem. Doggone squirrels. <laughs> yeah. Another garlic question. My garlic cloves I plan to plant have started sprouting already. Do I need to do anything different? Um, I don't think so. Just make sure the roots are down. Any other yeah, thoughts good on that, Ed? good and deep. And again, put a nice thick layer of straw or leaves or something on there to mulch them and keep them good and warm in the winter. When you say good and deep, how deep are you thinking? This person was thinking four inches. Oh, that's, wow. That's probably deeper than they need to go, huh? My rule of thumb has always been whatever the size of your seed, in this case, it would be a clove, Double that, and that's the depth of planting. So that'd be and that's about a two inches. Very roundabout yeah. Yeah. way to think about it. Some questions about fruits. Uh, somebody's asking what fruit trees and bushes grow well in Iowa. They know that mulberry, <laughs> apple, pear trees, and then raspberry and, well, they say blueberry bushes. And I have seen people have success with blueberry bushes lately, but Not certainly, often. certainly blackberry. Um, we, and pawpaws. Pawpaws. That's, grow. that's, our, that's our latest. Uh, Adventure is pawpaw land. Right. The only tropical fruit that grows in Iowa. Yeah, it's interesting. If you've never tasted one, try to find some next year. They're kind of a cross between a mango and a banana and I don't know. It's hard to even describe. It's it's like Gerber baby food, texture-wise. I I think of it as custard. I mean, I haven't eaten Gerber baby food for a while. Custard. Okay, maybe like custard, yes. Other answers, Juneberries, because you can can grow those as a tree. You can also groom them as a shrub, and hey, they make a great windbreak. And the berries are amazing. Excellent. They yeah. are similar nutrients to blueberries. Well, 
the only thing we're seeing in Iowa is that peaches are doing better here. And peaches again, are. This is rocking. one of the, there. There are a few things about climate change that are hey, this is good, and one of them I would say would be that peach trees are doing pretty good. Yes. I mean, the historic peach tree in Iowa is a little white one. It's okay, you know. But the the big yellow ones that are twice that size They're are easier to process. twice as good, in my opinion. They're easier to process. Yeah, and they the taste the little white peaches pop in your mouth and eat them, but the other ones are, are better for processing. Also, I love the sour cherries. Um, they are hybrids, but a Montmorency is really nice. Uh, it's got a yellow flesh, and a North Star has a really hmm. nice dark red flesh. Both with good cherries. for pies. Um, uh, vegetables. So somebody said they didn't get but two peppers out of six plants. So we're, the point here is a lot of people are having trouble with peppers this year and setting on late. Um, we had some that did really, really well. Mm-hmm. Finally. Was, finally. Well, you, even the, our Garden Sunshine, I think they went in a little bit late, but they did mm-hmm. pretty, they, they were they were pretty strong. But the, yeah, everyone, everything was a little bit slow. And the hard part was it was hard to wait for them to get red before you pick them. You know, we, we wanted to beat a frost, and yeah. we did. But I like the pretty colors, and I think it enhances the <laughs> flavor. One more quick one. Um, somebody says that they were told that oak leaves are bad for composting, too high in nitrogen to be any good. Mm. Um, I I haven't heard that they're high in nitrogen. They're high in tannins. I had not heard the yeah. nitrogen thing either. Um, I did find what Iowa S- uh, State University Extension says. Uh, they say, while oak trees are slightly acidic, an oak leaf mulch should have little effect on the soil pH. So they, they you know, think that shredding them up is a good idea. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I think they... they break down just fine once yeah, you turn And the white oak varieties tend to be lower in tannin than the black oak varieties, mm-hmm. or black or red oak. They, basically, the way I, I determine it, if, if, the, uh, if the lobes of the leaf are rounded, it's, it's lower in tannin. If they're, if they're pointed, then it's higher in tannin. Oh, well, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking I'll of oaks, we're trying, some, we're trying an experiment this year on mm-hmm. a very small scale. We're trying to uh, harvest oak, uh, acorns, and uh, see what we can do. I, I mean, leaching out that tannin is the problem. And uh, we're experimenting with that, and hopefully we're going to make some flour from it. Uh, we'll see. I mean, it's Not certainly... because we're afraid of gluten. No, no, we, we, love, we love our gluten. <laughs> Extra gluten. gluten. Double gluten, please. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, something new, something different, and uh, something very, very abundant. I mean, here in Iowa, there are oak trees everywhere. They twist ankles left and right in our neighborhood. <laughs> well, they can. Not as much as a walnut. Yeah. Anyway, well, hey, uh, Kathy, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today. You are very welcome. Uh, those are, uh, uh, as always, we tend to only get through a few of the, the uh, questions. So, hey, thanks to our guests today, uh, Sam Myers and uh, Maureen McHugh, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local business partners, uh, Gateway Market and Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And remember, your support for this program matters a lot. So go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about what you can do to make a difference. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.